Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. 7.35 p.m. Outfort, southern France, just after dinner. And I am pleased by a lord when he is the first to attack on horseback, armored and fearless. Thus does he inspire his men with boldness and worthy courage. And when the battle is joined, each man must be ready to follow him with joy, for no man is held to be worthy until he has taken and given many blows. Maces and swords, colorful helms, shields riven and cast aside. These we shall see at the start of the battle, and also many vassals struck down, the horses of the dead and wounded, running wild. <laughs> and when he enters the combat, let every man of good lineage think of nothing but splitting heads and hacking arms, for it is better to die than to live. Feet. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacob, your host as always as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia to the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 35, The Class System, Part 3, The Nobility, Part 2. One system to rule them all. Before we get to the episode today, I'd like to remind you all that this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Last month, I completely whiffed on plugging the podcast of the month, so this month I'm actually going to recommend two shows. And actually, that works out pretty good, because these are the two newest members of the podcast network, and they are superlative contributions to the network, and indeed, the very medium of podcasting itself. First up, we have The Cannonball. In this show, the hosts, Daniel and Cloud, are attempting to read and discuss the works contained in the Western canon of literature. If you like literature and are looking for a good podcast about some of it, this is a great show for you. I'm looking at you, Mom. They have just finished a series of episodes discussing Dante's Divine Comedy, which would be a pretty good place for all of the fans of this show to start in getting up to speed on some of the more cultural aspects of the early modern period, and even Catholic theology in general. So I highly recommend this show from just that perspective. It's also a lot of fun, and the hosts are great. 
The second new show in the podcast network is called Tiny Vampires. The host, Raven Forrest Fruscalzo, is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and is a Ph.D. candidate of Notre Dame studying neurophysiology. By contrast, it is 3.30 in the afternoon, and I'm still in my pajamas. Her specialty is vector-borne illness, or to put that another way, she studies illnesses that are transmitted to humans by mosquitoes, ticks, lice, and other similar creepy crawlies. The episodes of the show are topical and to the point. They are fairly short in the 15 to 20 minute range in general, and Raven does an amazing job of translating the highly technical topics of the day into human terms without being patronizing. The latter aspect of that is something I can only aspire to. Now, I mostly listen to history podcasts, but after Raven joined Agora, I binged through her back catalog and completely enjoyed pretty much every second of it. This is my kind of show, because I am a huge nerd, and I think that if you could deal with me talking about plate tectonics for hours at a time, then you will probably like it too. To learn more about these shows, you can go to the Agora Podcast Network page at agorapodcastnetwork.com. They also have their own websites, which you can look up, and they are on Facebook and all that fun stuff. If you have trouble finding them, drop me a line and I'll point you in the right direction. This month, we have quite a number of patrons, all of whom are deserving of honor and praise. So, let us begin with Stanley, hereafter known as Stanley, Lord of the Garnet Squirrel. Next, we have a patron known as Sidekick65, who shall hereafter be known as Sidekick65, Socket Wrench of the North. Up next, we have patron Aiden, who shall hereafter be known as Monsignor Aiden of the Cold Cuts. Patron Radial shall be known as Duke Radial, father of American descriptive ornithology. And finally, we have Patrick, hereafter dubbed Sir Patrick Comfychair, the Younger. Up next, we also have two patrons who have decided to up their donation on Patreon, which is something that is always very, very appreciated, and which I have decided some time back, and I didn't say anything, but let me just say it now. If you up your donation, I'm going to add to your regnal name. Patron Brian the Lodger has upped his donation and shall hereafter be known as Brian the Lodger, minder of the royal self-portrait. Then we have David Hefferfriend, second Marquis of Hungry Jacks and warder of the Royal Rakali. I gave Dave this name before I had established the adding bits to the snarky regnal name rule, which I haven't said anything about until now, and so his name is already very long, and so I'm going to leave it the way it is. To be fair, it's one of the best I've come up with. So, Dave Hefferfriend, second Marquis of Hungry Jacks and warder of the Royal Rakali, your name stays the same, but you are definitely awesome. Thank you very much for your donation, and thank you to all of the patrons who continue to be so generous with uh, their hard-earned money, and it is very much appreciated by me and my family. On a related note, a big point of this latest patronage drive was to help us move to a new apartment that was less dangerous. Uh, We had a place all picked out, but construction delays have caused that to fall through. So I'm happy to say that we are looking to buy a house instead, rather than trying to rent something. Uh, This is going to turn out for the best because it's going to allow us to get my daughter into a good school system and not just a place where there aren't bullets flying everywhere. So you guys have really helped make this possible uh, to a large extent, and we really appreciate it. Uh, And please uh, thank you so much for your generous donations already. And if any of you still out there think you could, uh, we would appreciate Uh, anything that you can give, and it would make a big difference in our lives. Now then, on to the show itself. Last time out, we started our look at the social structure of the Middle Ages with the first part of our look at the nobility. 
We talked about how the Germanic and Roman precedents of late antiquity merged during the chaos of the collapse of centralized authority, leading to the rise of the family unit as the basis of society. Over time, the landed magnates started relying more and more on the men of their household, particularly the types of people we might call security cards or hired thugs, depending on how you're feeling that morning. These men became increasingly important during the military conflicts between these landed magnates. This led to an escalation of the hiring of such men, which was recognized in the legal codes of the time. Today, we are going to talk about how the household men of the landed magnates became the nobility of the feudal age, the effect this had on society, and politics, and review some pertinent examples. We are going to try and do all this in one episode, so let's strap in. So I referenced this last time, but it bears some emphasis. These men were not getting a salary of any kind we would recognize. Basically, due to the desperate economic times, most members of the household, regardless of their social status, were paid in food and were very happy to get it. Very, very nice lords also gave out clothes. The landed magnates, of course, had some cash, and they did pay for goods and services to passing merchants and such. But basically, currency had become so scarce and valuable that most day-to-day -day goods and services were too cheap to involve currency in the transaction. And so people took their day-to-day -day pay in terms of real goods, and the real good which everyone needs most regularly and which does not just fall from the sky in temperate climates is food. But we shouldn't imagine this as a cold calculation, where Eric walked up to a window at the end of every week and was given a chicken and a bag of wheat by a bored clerk named Xander. First of all, given the tendency of food to go bad, it was a good idea to store it in your stomach on a daily basis. Plus, as we have covered in the episode on food in the Middle Ages, most people didn't have great cooking facilities. So basically, everyone probably ate together. There would have been a lot of variation around this concept, with the more Germanic areas having a more classic feast hall like you might see in movies from the 70s, while the more Roman areas might have something a little bit more formalized. But basically, the concept of the feast developed, and it served a lot of functions. Beyond distributing the only form of salary that the fighting man got, it ensured the development of camaraderie, as the men ate together and shared stories and sang body songs and did masculine things together. The order in which everyone ate also helped reinforce the hierarchy of the battle unit and instilled discipline. Of course, it also shows how this household social structure developed out of an actual household. There's nothing more important for a family than gathering together around the di dinner table. And if you have live-in servants, of course they join you after they are done bringing you your food. And then as the institution grew, it became a fairly formal affair with set rituals and expectations, but the cultural and social elements of this just should not be written off. I could do an entire episode on this aspect of early medieval culture just on its own. Jamie of the British History Podcast has done several, but suffice it to say that it was important, and for many households in the Middle Ages, it was the main way that the members of the household received compensation. But of course, as with any salaried position, eventually someone starts handing out bonuses for particularly good work, and then very dangerous work, and then just because it's Christmas, and then the next thing you know this is a line item in the budget, and it's written into the contract. Well-regarded Germanic war chiefs were known in poetry and song as givers of rings. And it's clear that over time it became expected that the landed magnates would pay their household men in ways that went beyond food and give them, you know, gifts and prizes. Now, I should say here that it's probable that this was always sort of part of it. It's not like there are distinct bands in the record we have like tree rings, where here they're just getting paid in food and here it's in jewelry. This progression is in some ways a pedagogical tool, but it can be said that it gradually, in the record, became more common that the landed magnate, who was now living in a house full of large, probably hairy men who stabbed people for a living, made sure to get them those bonuses if he possibly could. Ultimately, however, the economic circumstances of the time didn't just go away because Daniel was looking a little grumpy. Very little cash was in circulation, and the economy was fairly moribund. 
There are a number of ways that you can deal with this kind of situation, and ultimately all of them were used somewhere at some point during the Middle Ages in a way that did have effects. The most obvious thing you can do, if you need money and no one is going to tell you no, is that you find ways to physically make money. This has the added bonus that you can slap your face on it and people will take you more seriously. In many places around Europe, this was done with varying results. Generally positive. There are, however, a few preconditions that you need to meet to be able to use this technique. You need, you know, some sort of source of precious metal. This requires either a particularly active trade network, such as happened in England in the early Middle Ages, or you would need to have productive mines, as would happen in Saxony a little bit later on. But then the other thing is, you really do need to be in a position where no one is going to tell you no. You need to be some kind of king or get permission from one, or else coining your money is a really good way to get stabbed by someone else who's stronger than you. This happened in Anglo-Saxon England kind of a lot. So for your average landed magnate, this wasn't an option. Another option is to try to squeeze the required cash and prizes out of such economy as did exist. In the long term, you could try to encourage trade. This was certainly done and had an increasing role, but this was kind of a long-term move. In the short term, a more attainable solution was taxing the peasants as much as possible and then trying desperately to convert agricultural products into various kinds of things that household warriors would accept as real payment, probably converting it via trade. Again, over time, these efforts would gradually result in economic growth that would gain momentum, especially once feudal society became stabilized after the end of the migration period and trade was able to sort of revive without the threat of being raided. But agricultural produce was really better at maintaining warriors, not so much in paying them in the cash and prizes that kept them happy. No, to do that, you needed to steal stuff. And in order to steal stuff, you needed to be able to win, which meant that you needed more warriors, which meant that you needed more agricultural produce. So how did you do this? Well, you could work to improve the land, and this was indeed done, but agricultural techniques would advance only slowly over the Middle Ages, for reasons that we will discuss more in the episodes on the economy. As a result, if you wanted more agricultural produce, you needed more land. How did you get more land? Inheritance has always been popular, as have all the activities that lead to inheritance, if you get what I'm saying. And there's also the ever-popular forcing this poor people to sell you their land gambit, which was also very popular during the early Middle Ages. But really what we were talking about here is war. I mean, the point of this process is to pay your household men, a bunch of big guys with knives who eat your food and are suddenly demanding cash and prizes. You might as well make them actually fight to earn their keep, and then use the spoils to give them cash and prizes to keep them sweet. And what kind of spoils? Well, direct theft of material goods has always been a part of war, and much of the evidence we have indicates that the payment these men expected was directly related to the things that would be taken in the wake of a battlefield victory. So the rings from an enemy's fingers, any other small luxury items that could be stolen during a raid. Raids did sometimes target other aristocratic households, but as all thieves have from time immemorial, softer targets were preferred and other aristocratic households would be likely to have household men of their own. So this was done. But the peasants and the merchants in your enemy's territory were probably legitimate and attractive sources of loot, albeit loot of a lesser value. Churches were a nice target as well, though the social stigma that resulted meant that this had to be done very carefully, unless you were a Viking, a Magyar, or a Saracen. And finally, it's worth saying that one of the most lucrative items you could get in a early medieval raid was a human being. Yes, slavery was still pretty permissible. Uh, and several of the cities of northern Europe got their start as slave-trading centers. The church did look askance at this practice, and by the time of our narrative, the practice was on the decline. But it wasn't gone yet, and some of the last slave-trading centers in Europe would be in Italy, and the Pope himself would have 
castrato slaves until surprisingly late. In any case, once the loot was taken, it was probably pooled by the men and shared out by the landed magnate. The picture we are often given in the literature is of the household men being psychopathic peacocks, bedecked in stolen jewelry and otherwise waiting around for the next chance to kill someone, but we should probably be a bit careful about this description. It should be said that in the absence of currency, jewelry was kind of the next best thing. It was small, valuable, and portable, which meant that if your wife needed a few new slaves, it would be easy enough to use the jewelry to trade for them with the next merchant passing by. We indeed see evidence for this in the archaeological record. The jewelry found in graves is of course well preserved, mostly items kept for decoration. But in the coin hoards from this period, we see jewelry being cut into pieces to be used in smaller amounts for day-to-day -day purchases. Since storage of these items could be dicey, storing them on one's person made sense, especially if you were a big scary guy with a sword. Of course, it also became a way to visibly display one's success, but we probably shouldn't buy into the way these men dressed as a blanket condemnation of their vanity. As usual, historians who have made such condemnations in the past were probably saying more about the stoic values of their own age than saying anything really useful about the culture of the Middle Ages. What we can say is that the household men of this time probably wore a lot of jewelry, they took pride in this as it suggested that they were successful, while it also certainly had a more practical side. As for whether these men were psychopaths, let me just say that analyzing the mental and moral status of historic figures is always dicey. People in any era are willing to fight, kill, and die for a variety of reasons that do not make them psychopaths. Most of these reasons are cultural, and judging the morality of a cultural system by the standards of our own time is something that must be done very, very carefully. Without a doubt, these were violent men, but within the context of their society, they were seen to embody a legitimate expression of violence. We can't condemn them as a class simply for being wielders of violence any more than we can condemn members of our own society who are considered legitimate wielders of legitimate violence. Some of you might want to, but that's a philosophical discussion far beyond the scope of this show. I digress. For the landed gentry, the point of all this was that a few successful raids could keep the household men from feeling stabby for quite a while. Equally important, though, was that warfare could result in the capture of land. Land produced agricultural goods, which could be used to support more household men. More men means raids are more likely to be successful. More land can be captured, thus allowing more men to be supported, and so on. This is the basic calculus that underlies most historic military expansions, sort of the basic definition of a primitive military machine. But all military machines eventually reach the point of diminishing returns. The most basic issue is that the constant pressure to acquire more land to allow the upkeep of more men pushed the landed magnate to attempt to capture more territory than he could easily govern directly. With the roads being so bad in the Middle Ages, ultimately some amount of delegation of authority would be necessary. A second issue relates to the means of upkeep and pay for the men. Let's say that our landed magnate doesn't have any valid targets for attack at the moment, or that he has suffered a military defeat. Since his men's bonuses are paid with loot, he is now in the position of his men either getting fed up with a lack of material payment, or of having to try and find a way to support them from the income he gets from the land. This would require trading agricultural goods for material ones, which could be a pretty dicey situation in this time period. Eventually someone made the mental leap to solving both these problems by delegating the oversight of some of the lands that were captured to one of the members of the household, who would then be able to take a salary from the production of the land itself. This would allow the landed magnate to effectively govern more territory while offloading the need to provide a salary. Much of the precedents for the mechanics of this probably lie in the tax farming sister of the late Roman Empire, something I've referenced before. In this system, officials would have the legal authority to collect taxes and would, then would pay themselves from the proceeds and pass the remainder on to the state. 
We've discussed in a number of episodes how, during the evolution of the Frankish Empire, this activity devolved from being a legal office to being a heritable personal possession. In all likelihood, this is how the landed magnate himself got his land and power, and so this new process could just be seen as subcontracting the tax farming duties. Regardless of the developing culture, this kind of delegation required a large amount of trust on the part of the landed magnate. The household man would be physically removed from the household, and the landed magnate would essentially be giving him complete control of the resources of the territory in question. What was to keep the landed magnate's man from setting up on his own? After all, like I said, this is probably how the landed magnate ended up with his land and independence to begin with. What ultimately allowed the delegation of this authority from the landed magnate to his man was, in this case, trust, built on personal relationships and a deeply shared culture. The institution used to ensure this trust was an oath of loyalty, also called an oath of fealty, which was built upon the social norms of the new culture that was developing, and which valued bravery in battle and nearly suicidal levels of loyalty to a leader. These brave and loyal men who took the oath came to be called vassals. The social and cultural values that underpinned the oath have a strong precedence in Germanic myths and legends, but the increasing importance of the oath in society reinforced and expanded these values, and the new Christian religion gave them a blessing and helped to shape their continued evolution over the course of the Middle Ages. The oath of fealty itself has both Roman and Germanic precedence in the origins of the household system. Obviously, you don't hire someone to join your household without some understanding as to the terms of service, and so the first oaths were probably just informal arrangements between the employer and the employee laying out terms of service. Roman precedents for the practice exist, and can be found in legal codes of the late empire. They probably did influence the later legal forms taken by the oaths, but the words used to describe the oath of fealty and the forms taken by the rituals first associated with the oaths in poetry and song seem more Germanic? So, once again, there's uh, a big mixture in the record. As with much from this time period, traditional Germanic practices were probably merged in with superficially similar Roman ones and given a legal form in the melting plot of the era. The final stage of this evolution came from the need for witnesses to the ritual in an era of very low levels of literacy. Church leaders were probably seen as impartial and trustworthy, and some of them were even literate and they could write it all down. Their participation in the ceremony came to convey a religious blessing on the practice that grew with time. Ultimately, the Catholic Church would deem the oath of fealty to be a sacrament in itself, akin with marriage. I encourage those who want to learn more about this to seek out Mark Bloch's work, and he has several great sections on the subject in his Society of the Middle Ages book. Podcast footnote. From here on out, I will be shifting my terminology. Instead of talking about the household man living in the landed magnate's house, or his men living out on lands given to them by the landed magnate, I'll be shifting to more familiar medieval terminology, because we have now witnessed a shift in the society of the Middle Ages. The landed magnate has, by giving out this land, become a lord. The man who receives the land from the lord is a vassal. The household men who continue to live with their lord and who do not have land, I'll be calling retainers. These terms have become very technical in the way that they are used by historians, and for the sake of clarity I'm going to stick to these technical usages with their very specific meanings, but to be clear, at the time the terminology was much more vague. It was understood that there was a difference between the retainers and the vassals, but of course each local dialect had its own terminology, and not all of them made a clear linguistic distinction. Of course, anyone with an even passing familiarity with the era knows that there are a bewildering variety of terms for lord. The etymologies of the colloquial terms are actually very interesting, though I don't really have time to go into too much detail. 
Suffice it to say that the words used to describe the retainers and the vassals almost always have some sort of origin in phrases like one of my men or one of my boys. This usage has had an extremely long life in European languages and colloquialisms. Obviously, those in the military are often referred to by their officers as one of my boys or one of my men up to the modern era. But the impact on language is much deeper. Almost all the terms used to refer to the people we would come to know as knights have some sort of etymological connection to a word meaning boy, often via some sense of the word that it is equivalent to waitstaff, which is sort of why you ended up with people calling waiters boys up till fairly recent times, although, you know, please don't call your waiter garçon in France anymore, that's, that's not okay. No one likes to be called a boy when they're an adult. Anyway, this uh, linguistic shift and these etymological forms hold true for words like chivalry and knight, and are true in almost all European languages that have terms that are equivalent to those. There's one exception to this, this picture, where terms like boy or man came to relate to knights and things like that. The one exception is the term vassal, which is so important to this entire thing. No one really knows where the word comes from, which is kind of embarrassing. There are a million theories. My favorite is that it derives from a Celtic term that became common on the villas of Gaul and then transitioned into being part of vulgar Latin. Then the Germans adopted it, but it died out in the old Roman Empire, but reemerged when the Lombards invaded Italy, and then it was adopted into Latin there, and then it took on a legal significance because the Lombards were, you know, pioneers in the developments of the medieval legal system, and then it spread... Honestly, I just like this because it's so needlessly complex, and it's probably got no more to recommend it than any of the other theories. But it is a fun theory. End podcast footnote. So, given the cultural significance of the loyalty oath, and the material needs of the situation, the Lord felt secure in sending his men out to govern dispersed territories, and this gradually became a common practice. This allowed a massive expansion of the military and administrative capacity of these early medieval political entities. Suddenly, that feedback cycle of incentives, where land equates to more men equals more land, that which we described earlier, that's back on track, and it was thrown into overdrive. More land meant that a lord could hire more retainers, who would have the added incentive that if they were particularly good, their lord could give them territory to oversee, and they could become lords in their own right, hiring retainers and getting their own vassals. This allowed the lord to bring larger numbers of household men to bear in battle, allowing him to win more battles, get more loot, and take more land. This feedback cycle underpinned the life cycle of a number of the political entities we have already met in our story, and does a lot to explain their explosive growth from humble origins to regional powers. For example, the Rus and the Lombards undertook massive expansions in only a few generations. The various Frankish kingdoms went through several rounds of these expansions. But one thing that is odd about these kingdoms is that all of them, despite their rapid early expansion, eventually hit a point where they simply exploded into pieces. Even the Empire of Charlemagne, despite its continued expansion, fell apart after only a few generations. Furthermore, it isn't just that these kingdoms expanded to some point and then were unable to continue. They all expanded rapidly and then broke into pieces. Just as all the princes of the Kievan Rus and the Polish kingdom stopped listening to the central power of the monarch, we see the same thing in Lombardy and even in the Frankish Empire. This is not something we see in the empires of the nomadic steppe peoples, at least not before the Mongols, and it's certainly not something we see very often in the empires of the ancient world. Clearly the problem of diminishing returns still existed, but now on a larger scale and in the context of a uniquely European brittleness to the political order. We're going to need to go back and re-examine the fundamental building block of this feudal system uh, in order to understand what was going on, and that fundamental building block is the relationship between the lord and the vassal. As we've said, the lord gives a piece of land to his vassal, 
who loyally administers the land on the Lord's behalf. Administering the land, of course, required the vassal to develop an administration, which, given the cultural and legal precedents available, meant developing some kind of military force. And so the vassal, who had so recently been a member of the Lord's household, would turn around and bring retainers into his own household. As we've already discussed, these men would be kept up day to day based on the agricultural productivity of the land being administered by the vassal, or on the spoils of any military engagements that they engaged in. As before, if the vassal had been given enough land, or managed to acquire more using his retainers, he could in turn become a lord, and make some of his retainers into vassals. The key point is that the lord gave the vassal the land, and the vassal gave the lord loyalty, which in theory meant that the economic and military resources of the vassal were at the disposal of the lord when he needed them. In theory, the vassal should just be willing to provide these things when asked, but of course, since, in practice, the vassal just held these things as personal property on a day-to-day -day basis, conflicts gradually developed, which meant that these agreements had to be spelled out, and eventually they were written down, which gives us some look at how they developed. There were a wide variety of legal forms that developed over time, and for most of the Middle Ages, much of what was expected of the vassal remained in the realm of social convention. Still, economic benefits, rights over the land, taxes, these, these persisted throughout the entire Middle Ages. The most common version of these deals required the vassal to provide the military services in times of war, and this became something ubiquitous and almost a rule over the course of the early Middle Ages. As usual in today's story, this probably started out as a very informal arrangement and then became more formal with time. Mark Bloch points out that the version of this system that survived into the Middle Ages probably evolved in Francia, and as you would expect, the documents that survived from Francia show much more of a patchwork of fairly rudimentary agreements with a wide variation than we see in some other areas. Just as the greatest amount of human genetic diversity is in Africa, where humans evolved, the greatest amount of structural diversity in the feudal system was found initially in Francia though it should be pointed out that they weren't written down until many years later, and there are a number of factors that could have screwed up the agreements in Francia. But anyway, in some agreements, lords simply require the whole of the fighting household to show up for military campaigns, while in other agreements, they specify a set number of men. Sometimes the number of men was based on the amount of land given, sometimes it was just a specific number of men that was pulled out of nowhere. By contrast to this patchwork, the agreements in England were created comparatively late, after the Norman Conquest in 1066, and most importantly, after the basic theoretical structure of the feudal system had already been sort of hammered out in Francia and some other places. As a result, the system created by William the Conqueror is much more formalized. The land was surveyed, the famous Doomsday Book, and an estimate was made as to how many of fighting men could be supported by the land and the feudal grants that were made to the major lords specified the number of fighting men expected to be show up based on the estimates of what the land could support. Arrangements in Italy, Iberia, and Central Europe show variations on these themes based on local circumstances, with later agreements generally being more structured, but sometimes having to deal with local realities that they inherited. The real point is that in all these agreements, the vassal would be required to maintain some kind of military force of his own, be they retainers or his own vassals, in order to fulfill his commitments to his lord. This would change over time, but we'll get to that later. This of course meant that the vassal was under the same incentive structure that his lord had been to take on retainers and to uh, grant some of them lands to become lords of their own. 
And so, from the land of the original landed magnate, you would end up with a descending hierarchy of lord-vassal relationship, with the vassals of the original lord acting as lords to their own vassals, who would then have their own vassals, and so on down the line. All of these men would probably also maintain household retainers for day-to-day -day administration, but when bigger conflicts erupted, the first lord would potentially be able to call in all these vassals and all their retainers to fight. Now, if you don't look too closely, you might think that this structure was a sort of Weberian social pyramid, with the major magnates at the top and their direct vassals below them, and so on down the line, all tied together by ascending oaths of loyalty. There was, indeed, some indication that the men of nobility viewed themselves in this light, all loyal members of a hierarchy knowing their place in the structure. The reality was different. There are a number of contributing factors, but the biggest one is that somewhere along the line the vassals began taking loyalty oaths to multiple lords in order to acquire control over more land. This sounds sort of insane, but think about it. They only have to show up at work when there's a war on. What's the harm in moonlighting with some other lord? Especially if the other lord is friendly. Of course, pretty quickly they're developed problems with this. The lords hated it, and so the earliest legal codes banned the practice in no uncertain terms, but here some of the other factors at work in the European Middle Ages came into play. The roads were very, very bad, and water transportation was often unhelpful. The lord didn't always know what his vassals were doing, and by the time he found out, a number of vassals may have begun to undertake this practice, which is, you know, potentially pretty uh, lucrative. And then, of course, there is an issue that we have discussed at some length in our story, the drift of these personal relationships into generational affairs. I might keep only to one lord out of very personal loyalty. He's my friend, I like him, we fought together. But will my son, or my grandson? And at that point, when a vassal, be it through generational drift or simple distance, had managed to get away with taking a second loyalty oath, the lord would basically be confronted with the option of ignoring what was going on, or trying to punish his vassal. Now, there's a military twist, which I'm going to be talking about next episode, but all of a sudden, the Lord looks around and finds that the only way he can raise the military force to punish his vassal is by relying on other vassals. And whose side will they take? As you can imagine, this resulted in unending conflicts, and the development of the legal code of the Middle Ages was, in many ways, a response to this to try and avoid unnecessary conflicts, and yet they kept happening, because the basic issue here was it's, you know, a valuable practice for the vassals to take on multiple oaths of loyalty, and the lords want them to not do it, and that, that's basically in conflict, but the only way to resolve it is either through negotiation via the legal system, or war, using other vassals. After centuries of going back and forth, of developing the legal system, of fighting conflicts, it was eventually determined that the ban on multiple lords was a lost cause. The practice was simply too widespread to stop. Legal codes went through all sorts of acrobatics to sort through this mess, uh, including one period where the oaths included a clause that essentially said, I'm super loyal to this lord, and this time I mean it. And oddly enough, that little gem worked, sort of, for a century or so. But ultimately, by, let's say, 1300 or so, the entire enterprise was found to be pointless. Multiple oaths were just a thing that existed and there was no way out of it. The end result was twofold. First, any time a conflict broke out, a lord was never entirely sure which of his vassals would actually send help. And so, a declaration of war often resulted, and followed, what could basically be described as a furious round of internal diplomacy, as the lord sent people to negotiate with the vassals to ensure that they actually showed up. This explains to a large extent the extremely personal nature of the medieval political order. Whatever its origins, a successful ruler knew that he had to make his vassals like him. If they didn't, they could find a way to sneak out of sending help in a crisis. 
The exact form of this, and the, for lack of a better term, body politic for which the Lord needed to work, varied from society to society and kingdom to kingdom based on local political circumstances. But, broadly speaking, this is true from the relatively centralized situation in England to the much more decentralized situation in the Holy Roman Empire. At a much more fundamental level, however, the neat pyramid of European feudalism was fundamentally upended by the institution of multiple lordships. As the vassals and lords went around swearing allegiance, all willy-nilly, acquiring more and more land and titles, a family which had entered a relationship as a lowly vassal uh, at the start of the early Middle Ages might, by taking numerous oaths of loyalty over the course of generations, acquire huge tracts of land. Some of these holdings might come to rival the holdings of their old lords. This in itself would be destabilizing, but then, you know, two could play at that game. The old lords themselves started taking oaths to acquire land, and very rare instances, even from families to whom they themselves had given land. Hierarchies became intensely muddled in this fashion, though the people at the very high end of the social order tended to remain on top. So while kings and major lords used personal ties and alliances uh, with family members to try and cobble together and hold coalitions uh, for their larger dynastic ambitions across Europe, the other members of the nobility were just trying to find any way to get any kind of advantage over all their neighbors, be it legal, social, or military, by which they could acquire some right to some kind of land. At the same time, this process jumbled together the upper classes of European society, not just in terms of different levels of nobility, but also across what we might call national borders. The result was a large amount of chaos as borders became essentially meaningless. Loyalties became unclear, and it became very difficult to even know who one's own vassals actually were. We've discussed this a couple times, but I just want to reinforce it. Ultimately, the people higher up on the food chain ended up encouraging the system sometimes, be they the kings or the larger magnates, because it was found to be valuable to secure the loyalty of those at the bottom of the hierarchy by ensuring that their holdings were dispersed. If, after all, you had holdings all over France, you would be more likely to decide to place your loyalty to the ruler of the whole country rather than the ruler of a particular region. This is a pretty unique feature of European feudalism to my mind, and it explains a lot about the unique nature of the system, not just its negative features. Yes, it made many parts of Europe fundamentally ungovernable, but it also tied the European aristocracy in with their vassals and infused them into a real social class, with a unique set of customs and an identity of their own. They had methods of educating and indoctrinating their children that made them feel like part of this ruling group, no matter where in the hierarchy they stood, and made them separate themselves out from the peasantry. While the presence of a ruling class is not something modern people tend to admire, it should be said that this reality of a ruling class that was continental in scale and culture helps to explain further the development of a concept of Europe as a cultural entity. At the same time, it must be said that the people on the very bottom of the nobility food chain lived lives that were very different from those at the top. Though in some ways they shared a culture, for those at the bottom, they shared a noble culture only insofar as they could appreciate what they did not really have. For families who held only a handful of small territories, securing the economic means of survival could become very difficult indeed. This became doubly difficult as the feudal system evolved and became mature. Rules both social and legal were set in place to divide the peasantry from the nobility, which served to eventually limit the options by which these lower members of the nobility could actually earn their keep. In all likelihood, many such families fell into the ranks of the peasantry over time. We have testimony, in fact, from some poor nobles who ended up starving rather than face the reality of falling into the lower classes. 
Many others were forced by circumstances to wander, seeking out means of making an income permitted by their class origins. As the nobility was increasingly being seen as a military caste, many of these men, wandering Europe in search of new lands or opportunities for loot, were, in one way or another, selling their swords. Literature of the time and from later eras often viewed this romantically, telling tales of knights errant, seeking adventures and lords worthy of their service. The idea that many such men were forced to wander by economic hardship may even add sympathy, which we in modern times can view these men. While there is a grain of truth to this romantic notion, we should also recognize that even these small nobles subsisted by using physical force to extract wealth from the peasantry, and that these wandering knights errant were often simply mercenaries. However we choose to view such things, the fact is that as Europe entered the Middle Ages, there was a large pool of men willing to sell their military services for money. We will return to this in a future episode. But I would like to end today with a short discussion of those in the middle of the nobility, or maybe even the lower end of the middle. The small landowners, who were not quite starving in their castles, but who were also not highly influential in the politics of the age. It's these families that I think most challenge the view we have in modern times of the Middle Ages, that most force us to stretch our minds to understand this culture, and thus are most useful for helping us to do so. It was these small landowners that made the feudal system run. This was where the rubber hit the road, where the majority of peasants had their closest experience with the majority of the nobility. I will talk about this more in the episodes on the peasantry, but it should be understood that the bonds between the noble and the peasant were in some ways as mutual as those between a lord and a vassal. The peasant was, of course, very much in the lord's power, and was forced to give a huge portion of their produce to the lord, but lords offered the peasants protection from foes both man-made and natural. At a basic level, peasants were not automatons, completely at the mercy of the aristocracy. They had agency, and they were capable of resistance. Wise lords knew that wisdom lay in shearing the sheep rather than skinning it. Over time, the bonds between noble families and the population of an area could become very close. And it's clear from some of the records of the High Middle Ages that some lords could be downright popular with their peasants. We hear multiple accounts from various regions and from many different time periods of noble families who were on the run from their enemies being supported by the peasantry which allowed a comeback. Some of this could be xenophobia against the new lords, or fear of the old ones, but it should be said that the counterfactual is also on record. Nobles always had enemies, and the enemies of nobles who were particularly cruel or callous often found very willing aid from the peasantry in the cloak-and-dagger world of medieval politics and war. Given these pressures, and in the absence of any better form of social organization, the small nobility were often the people who best represented the opinions of the population in a time before mass communications. They were of course not a perfect representation of the opinions of the mass of the people. But in general, when you read in medieval chronicles of someone being popular with the people, they are probably talking about these small-time nobles. And in this set of circumstances, a class divide within the nobility began to appear during the Middle Ages. It would manifest in different ways in different places, but one thing that would become clear by the end of the High Middle Ages, say by 1300 or so, is that in the most advanced kingdoms there was something of a split between the high aristocracy of the largest landowners and the small nobility, who were closer to the peasantry. In a number of political conflicts in France, England, and Germany, the aristocracy found itself overruled by the mass opinion of these small nobles. Particularly savvy kings began to realize the potential of acting as populists by appealing to this class directly without going through the hierarchy of the aristocrats. 
Ultimately, as the Middle Ages wound to a close, the aristocrats no longer were willing to marry into the lower nobility, nor recognize them as members of the same class. In this process, we find the answers to a number of the enduring mysteries of the Middle Ages, from the survival of English as a language to the rise of the modern state. Hopefully, we will have time in this podcast to fully explore at least some of the questions that this raised. But for now, we must close. In this episode and the last, we started our run of topical episodes with a summary of the development of the feudal culture of the European nobility. As fate mushed together the German and Roman upper classes, elements from both were combined into a new society. Increasingly locally oriented and dependent on personal ties, the structure of this society initially rested on family ties. When these ties failed to produce lasting stability of either a military or a political nature, the nobility increasingly turned to loyalty oaths provided by men who entered their households, essentially bringing them into the family. Such was covered in the last episode. In today's episode, we explored how these households were run economically, and how eventually the landed magnates needed to expand their lands beyond their ability to govern the land directly. These landed magnates eventually began paying their men in land for their service, which allowed these vassals, in their turn, to act as lords to other men. This allowed the massive expansion of these early medieval kingdoms, but some quirks of the social system, namely the generational nature of these relationships, and the ability of the vassals to take multiple lords, made the political order extremely fragile. Eventually this system became extremely muddled, as members of the nobility entered into an infinite variety of vassal and lord relationships in an attempt to secure more land and advance their status. A key ramification of this was the creation of an international noble culture that covered all of Europe. As time went on and the social structure matured, it developed internal divisions, with the more numerous small nobility being viewed with almost as much contempt by the aristocracy as the peasantry was. Next time, we will be in the month of October, which is just going to be chock-a-block with special content in celebration of our podiversary, as well as the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. In the episode in November, I will expand on some of the themes from this episode with the first part of a two-part episode on warfare in the Middle Ages. I suspect a lot of you have been looking forward to something like this. I know I have. Military history is something of a guilty pleasure. So, a lot of fun stuff coming up. Be sure to keep your feeds updated, and as some of the content will be coming through the Agora Podcast Network feed or in other shows, I really encourage you to keep an eye on the Facebook page, the blog, and on Twitter. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and speak to you next time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.